You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters, and I hate birds. I hate the sound of their wings flapping and their spindly little legs and their unblinking eyes. The only thing that makes birds bearable is the fact that you usually never have to come into close proximity with them. That is, until they mistake your open window as the sky and you end up trapped in a very small apartment with three very flappy birds. Now, my living room is definitely not a space conducive to birds, so being trapped in there with three wild pigeons was my worst nightmare. And once they were inside, they couldn't figure out how to get back out and instead just swooped wildly about the apartment. I tried to wait it out to see if they would eventually find their way back out the window, but after a while, they seemed to have settled right in and made themselves at home on my couch. Luckily, a friend of mine volunteered to help out and they were eventually removed without too much hassle. However, the experience of being swarmed by birds in my own apartment was really enough to solidify my hatred of them. In today's episode, we have our very last instalment from audio journalism students at Melbourne University, sharing their take on the theme Swarm. In our first story, Beck talks to local Adelaide beekeepers about how and why bees swarm. I've always found bee colonies somewhat mesmerising, seemingly powered by a greater force working together as a superorganism. I wanted to know what drives bees to swarm. Are they just hardwired to? So swarming is an instinct in the bee. It's actually built into their psyches. And the reason why they swarm is because they do. That's Leanne Vernow, an apparist and member of the Beekeepers Society of South Australia. So swarming is where bees leave the colony for a new home. They don't travel far, typically only 10 to 15 metres away from the mother colony. And it's no spur of the moment decision, it's planned out. The day you don't think they're going to swarm, they swarm. So they've got some scouts, the scouts will go out probably a fortnight before, they already know where they're going to go. So when they swarm, the location where that swarm is going to go has already been determined. So why do they swarm? Sandra Ulrich, a beekeeper of 10 years and founder of Adelaide Bee Sanctuary, says it's still not well understood and can be triggered by a number of things. There could be that there is a congestion in the hive of adult bees. It could be that you've got an older queen in the hive and there's a propensity for that gene pool to want to swarm every year. They also swarm to go somewhere with a richer nectar source. Whatever the reason, it's a sight to behold, between five and 10,000 bees flowing out of the hive like a water torrent. They fly, but they fly in a swirling motion. So you can stand in the middle of it and you can pretend that you're in some sort of tornado. For Sandra, being in the middle of a swarm is nirvana. They just fly around you. Some of them land on you, but there's no aggression. The word spiritual, it's not descriptive enough. Once they arrive, they huddle together in a lump. It varies in size, from a fist to a basketball. And in the middle is the most important being the queen. So they're trying to protect her, they're looking after her, even though it looks like a bit of a mess, just little bees hanging on each other's legs, that's what's happening. She's a hard little girl to see, she's fairly elusive. They haven't left the hive for their forever home, they're between places, 
and where they'll squat is far from regal. Electrical boxes, wine barrels, cupboards, compost heaps, barbecues, under trampolines, bird boxes. The list goes on. They hang tight until the scout bees find the more suitable abode. Like many creatures, bees work in sync with the seasons. But beekeepers have noticed that the swarming season is changing. So they're not going to swarm now. They won't swarm to about September and swarm through to probably around December. But what's happened because of the funny weather we were having, they've been swarming to about March. So that's a swarming season. That the swarming season is changing struck me as fascinating. And I wondered how climate change fit into the picture. I looked into it. According to Bees for Development, the specialist international beekeeping organisation, unpredictable weather conditions and insufficient forage encourage swarming. And when there's not enough food about, bees spend more time in their hive, overcrowding it and triggering that swarming instinct. The problem with swarming is that the queen and two thirds of the bee population that leave the mother colony will need to find an alternative place to call home. So it needs to be dark, dry and warm. And those bees need to build up their colony to full strength in readiness for winter. Now, if there's no nectar flow coming on because of climate change, and then bees can't strengthen their colony, then you have dwindling and dying out colonies. And it's not only the new hive that's at risk. Back at the mother hive, things aren't peachy either. They're waiting for their new queen to hatch and get frisky. Now, she hasn't been mated yet. She's still a virgin. Global warming will affect her mating flight. If there are no drones out, she won't mate properly. But climate change mightn't be the only reason why swarming behaviour is changing in the Adelaide region. Sandra has an alternate theory. She thinks it's down to the rise in urban beekeeping. If you have swarming bees because, first of all, your hive isn't managed well and or it's been influenced by climate change, you're contributing to these other issues of bees moving into areas that aren't necessarily meant for them. She thinks the swarms caught in urban environments should be handed over to commercial beekeepers to be put to work pollinating crops. While we can get an idea, it seems we'll never truly understand swarming. Bees really live their own secret lives. That story was produced by Beck Pridham. The supervising producer was Louisa Lim. In our next story, Clancy explores how swarms of personal data are utilised in building our reality. Do you ever get the feeling that you're being watched? Or followed? Tracked, maybe? Well, these days we are. We all are. Private actors or local governments. Here in Australia, someone's always watching you. And they need something from us to work. They get this thing by tracking us. Through CCTV, sensors, public transport, billboards. The thing that I'm talking about is... Data. 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 You've guessed it. It's data. Specifically your data. In fact, this is a story about how huge swarms of data, your data, is being used to feed the city. 
So in a technical sense, a smart city would be a city that is making use of large-scale heterogeneous, as in varied, data sets. That's Scott McQuire, a professor of media and communications at the University of Melbourne. And it is performing analytics on those data sets and it is trying to apply learning from those data sets to various kinds of urban processes. Although smart cities are a fairly new thing, cities have always collected data to work. Cities have always had certain types of data that might be about resource use, you know, how much electricity do we use or so on and so forth. But as the ability to collect data from a population has become easier and easier, the idea of the smart city began to emerge. But a smart city concept is more around the capacity to have network sensors, mobile devices, the kind of data you can collect through that. And so it's trying to integrate mesh network of data collection. So what is this network of data collection and how is it collected? Well, the surveillance is ubiquitous. Our data is constantly being collected by... Traditional institutions like transport companies. E-tickets, utilities. Like power companies or water supply or so on. Local governments. Fairly benign things that are intended to help the city run more smoothly. The idea being that all your data is sucked up and fed into this petri dish that is the city, allowing it to grow. Like a social network, the smart city is only as good as the amount of information it receives. Air pollution, water quality, energy use, transport, foot traffic. With as many as two million CCTV cameras in Australia, it's no exaggeration to say we're constantly being watched. Even your movements are being tracked. There are cameras everywhere in the CBD. The smart city demands a certain level of surveillance, so you can say that's part of the infrastructure. You know what? Let's get a quick legal perspective before we continue. Dr Jake Goldenfein, a lawyer and senior lecturer at Melbourne Uni, Western democratic liberal law thinks about a person who's given rights in terms of privacy and property. And so privacy laws that have developed in the context of earlier ideas of network communications, they're trying to protect a version of privacy that really can't exist anymore. We might say we've, we've really transcended uh, the question of what, what is private, what is public. But what about private actors. Last year, 7-Eleven introduced facial recognition technology on top of their CCTV cameras across all of their Australian stores. And then there are smart billboards. With something like a smart billboard, it's referring mainly to that capacity to be interactive, to make an assessment of its possible audience. And it can present specific ads in relation to that. Is that a good thing? On the one hand, an advertiser is going to say, well, audiences want to see advertising that's relevant to them. And on the other... The darker implications come from what's going to happen to that data after that initial capture and that profiling. Is it going to be retained? Is it going to be on-sold to a third party? QMC, an Australian digital billboard company, is a good example of this. Their ads are all over Melbourne, and if you're watching them, you can bet that they're watching you too. Take, for example, their measurement system called the RDA GeoTribes Explorer, which targets audiences profiling variables based on demographics, socioeconomic, attitudinal, media consumption, consumer behaviour, intention to purchase, audience segmentation, and comprehensive heat mapping so they can identify audience locations. 
If you're starting to feel a bit weird, you aren't alone. No, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable knowing that I'm being kind of watched, bit big brothery kind of. Yeah, a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, you see cameras everywhere. You go to the shopping centres, you go check out when you get your groceries, there's cameras there. I feel that my privacy is eroded in terms of um, my identity, who I am as a person. It's not just accept mass surveillance because it's convenient for us. We don't have to then think about it. Let's put safeguards in place. I feel like there's still discussions we need to have. That story was produced by Clancy Barlin. The supervising producer was Ollie Krusek. Next up, Amalia explores the link between jellyfish blooms and climate change. When jellyfish come together in large groups, sometimes kilometres wide, it's called a bloom. These blooms can be hauntingly beautiful, otherworldly even, but they're also destructive and hint at climate and ecosystem change. I'm Amalia Hart. I'm a science journalist. I've been fascinated with jellyfish ever since I saw them strewn across a beach as a child. I was captivated. Penelope Davis, a Melbourne-based artist, knows what that's like. She once saw one of these blooms while walking her infant son along the foreshore of Port Phillip Bay. I used to push him in his pusher along the... um the, the foreshore and the shoreline this particular year, maybe 2009, 2008 or 2009, the Elwood foreshore shoreline was clogged with uh, large jellyfish, large blubbery jellyfish, and it went on for a few weeks. What alarmed Davis so much was the relationship between jellyfish blooms and ecosystem changes. Jellyfish thrive in warmer waters and can survive pollution because they require less oxygen than other marine animals to live. As they thrive, they create their own problems, crowding out other species. Michael Kingsford is a professor of marine biology at James Cook University and a jellyfish expert. So jellyfish have been through uh, a number of mass extinctions, which a very obvious one would be when the dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. So they survived that. So, whew, you know, they're going to be around a long time. So a bit of climate change from us is not going to make them go extinct, would be my view. Um, what the danger potentially is, is changes to ecosystems as a result of there being too many of them. What Davis saw on the Elwood foreshore inspired her to create an installation at a local gallery of huge jellyfish, some filled with lights, that moved around the room on fishing lines. Davis wanted to capture the tension between the beauty of jellyfish blooms and their relationship to environmental degradation, so she used waste materials to build the creatures. I suppose as an artist you're always working with your hands and your head and um, your sense of aesthetics and, and your rational self. Uh, so on the one hand, jellyfish are beautiful. When they move through the water, they're, they're um, entrancing to watch and you know some, sometimes they have bioluminescent qualities and they pulsate and uh, it's like watching some sort of ballet. But um, yeah, on the other hand, Um, They represented um, uh, something sort of monstrous and sinister. 
The swarming behaviour of jellyfish is what can turn these seemingly innocuous little creatures into a destructive force. They've brought down aircraft carriers, they've brought down nuclear power plants, and they've brought down aquaculture facilities, for example, uh, with very large numbers of jellyfish that block the entrance to something, or you know, they'll block up the sides of aquaculture nets so things suffocate, tentacles get through, hurt the animals. But the Ronald Reagan, one of the world's biggest uh, aircraft carriers, got stuck in Brisbane Harbour because its intakes got jammed up with jellyfish. So the humble, brainless jellyfish brought down one of the world's most powerful warships, you know. They have this, this weediness or this toughness, so they can, they're, like, they're like weeds, and weeds, weeds become a, a disaster when they swarm, when, you know, they proliferate and mass together. Davis sees jellyfish swarms as a metaphor for the way that humans have changed the planet. They're kind of a symbol of what we have created. I mean, we're, we're the ones responsible for polluting the oceans and um, for, you know, destroying the environment. We've, we've created the circumstances which mean that these, these jellyfish survive and flourish at the expense of all else. That story was produced by Amalia Hart. Mel Chun was the supervising producer. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our next story, Josh discusses the rise of online dating apps and how they've influenced our connections in the digital age. Heads up, this story contains sexual references. As part of the digital revolution, we are swarming to dating apps, and usage has increased from 185 million people in 2015 to 270 million people by the end of last year. This evolution of the eternal quest for intimacy has had mixed outcomes, though, and Tinder user Zane Marsh's experience of the app has been far from a fairy tale so far. Get on Tinder and get a match pretty much instantly. We hit it off. And she asked my Snapchat within five minutes. I was like, oh, this is a bit fast. We ended up just sending videos to each other. So like a bit of face, bit of dick. And after that, she sends me screen recordings of absolutely everything, along with screenshots of my Facebook profile and my Facebook's friends list. I've got no money. This can't work. They can't blackmail me. So I just go, yeah, send it. They're like, no, do as I say or I'll, I'll send it. And they start counting down from 10. So I blocked them at about five. And nothing happened. Being catfished is not the norm, but Zane still questions the purpose of swipe culture. Well, Tinder's main goal surely is hookups, keeping people on the app. So they do what they want you to do. So... I've, I've found less people find relationships on there and that's how they make their money. It's not all bad when it comes to online love. Every member of the digital swarm has a story to tell. 
In its 2017 survey, 25% of dating app users in Australia found a long-term partner. A Melbourne University student, Juan, wasn't even considering this when he downloaded social networking app, Wink. I met her back in July of 2020, 15th of July to be precise. Um, we met online, so I was back in Melbourne and she was all the way in Europe, in Poland. She was just something else. She was just super interesting to talk to. She was captivating. I got the lucky chance to go see her. So I got all the required documents. Everything was ready. I even got my driving license because when I was going to be over there, public transport wasn't really going to be easy to access, especially with the pandemic. Um, transport was, was going to be really hard. So I got my license here in the span of two weeks. Everything was clear to go here from this side. Everything was fine. The airline let me board. I arrived in Poland. Everything seemed to be running smoothly. And I get to the border control and they're like, what are you doing here? They just didn't want to buy it. They were like, nah, sorry, you need to be a student to actually come in. This letter is not valid for entry. You need to have an actual student enrollment here in a university here in Poland to be allowed into the country. And I explained that they had already like, guaranteed me that I was going to be allowed in. They just, they weren't cut, like they weren't budging. They were just like, yeah, we're going to have to send you back to Dubai. There's nothing we can do. As long as you're not a student, we can't let you in. The modern dating app user typically navigates an endless stream of proposed matches but it took one unintended connection for Juan to end up stuck halfway across the globe. Until eventually the border guard, uh, he was like, yeah, so if you're a student, if you somehow miraculously end up being a student here, we'll allow you entry. Otherwise, we'll have to send you back. And I got working. I talked to my parents, talked to my sister. I talked to the university and they agreed that they were going to enroll me as a student. I just had to pay the enrollment fee and... Long story short, I ended up becoming a student in a Polish university, the University of Bydgoszcz. Yeah, I eventually get to where she lives at around midnight and she's there waiting for me. I was like just walking on the street and then she's walking towards me and I'm like, is that you? And then she just starts running towards me and we hugged for about five minutes. After two weeks of bliss in Poland, Juan is home now. This is far from the end of his international online love story. Hopefully I'll be able to go and see her soon. For the future, don't know what the future holds for me. Um, anything could happen, but things are still going well. And I definitely can say that that's the best thing that happened to me during these hard times. And I've made memories with her that I will never forget. And it's just something that online platforms have opened the path for. These stories show that the recent swarm to online love presents both risks and opportunities. As for Zane, well, he's happy to stick with the swarm. Still haven't learnt my lesson. Still on Snapchat, still on Tinder, and still don't care. <laughs> that story was produced by Josh Nevitt. Ollie Krusek was the supervising producer. In our next story, Julie explores the disturbing prevalence of sexual harassment, an experience which is far too real for many women and gender-diverse people trying to enjoy a night out. A few weeks ago on a sunny Saturday, my friends and I had actually made plans 
to go out for a few drinks and a dance. And so I remember um, waiting all week long for it to be finally Saturday because it's something I'm always looking forward to. And I know going out together is always so much fun and everyone is always such in a good mood then. So on that Saturday, we decided to all get ready together in the changing rooms of where we had played hockey that day. And so we listened to songs, we talked, um, we all got ready together and we were also having pre-drinks. And when it was finally time to go, we were all super excited and ready to have a fun night. So we decided to catch public transport to head to the city. I was waiting at the tram stop and a guy came up to me and said that he liked my sweater. First, I just thought he was being friendly. So I just kind of said thank you. And then he kind of kept asking me questions and just like answering kind of bluntly and like walking off and looking down on my phone um, and he would like follow me when I would walk down to one like end of the train station and then he started asking for like my number and like my Instagram and Snapchat and I just said that I don't give them out and he was still just like wouldn't leave me alone like he was asking if I wanted to go over to his place for like a barbecue and it was like super uncomfortable because obviously I was like walking off and he was like following me but then he ended up getting on the same tram as me and I was freaking out so I ended up getting off the tram like a few stops after. I was catching the train, um, a man got on and he came and he sat in the seat next to me. He said to me, can you hold my phone? And I didn't think really much of it and I said, oh yeah, sure, I can hold your phone. And um, he kind of bent down to tie up his shoelaces and then as he did that, he said, can you read what's on my phone? And I said, oh no, that's that's okay and he said no no read what's on my phone and he kind of touched my hand and he moved the screen so that I could see it um and the screen was open um it was open on notes but it said something about how hard his dick was and how when he saw me like he got erect and and all these vile things and you know, the the moment that I read it, I probably kind of was in shock and I didn't really believe what I was reading. All I kind of saw was the word dick and, and I just gave him back his phone and he just sat there. So we got off the train and we walked into the nightclub ready to just dance all night long and have fun. A friend of mine, whenever he'd have a little bit of alcohol, he'd just like lose control. He'd get argumentative, he'd get angry, he'd get a bit touchy-feely um, and he'd probably just lose the sense of self. There was this one night I can remember we were up um, in the middle of the club in the R&B section and everyone started disappearing like people go to the bar, people go to the bathrooms. It would just be the two of us. He started dancing a little bit too close and touched somewhere that shouldn't be touched on my body and I wasn't asking for it at all. I was a bit too afraid to confront him because I didn't know like what to say. But when I finally did, he got quite angry at me and upset and quite defensive saying, oh, it's only the alcohol, like I'm not that type of person. But he just didn't realise that every time he kept drinking, he kept losing himself and then he just kept making silly mistakes. I was just at a party and I was getting with this guy, like we were just kissing. And then all of a sudden he just grabbed my hand and put it down his pants. And I just remember, like, I just froze. I just had no idea what to do. Um, I felt so uncomfortable. I just stood there and 
no words would come out. Like I couldn't say anything. I just didn't know what to do. And then after I didn't tell anyone because I just felt so embarrassed. Like I thought, oh, all the girls are going to think I'm gross. All we wanted to do is actually have a fun and nice night together and not worry about anything else, you know. But instead, we were swarmed by men once again. And I say once again because this is not just something that happened to us once. No, this is what a typical night out for any female wanting to just have fun with her friends is like. That story was produced by Julie Barman. Eugenia Zubchenko was the supervising producer. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Waramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. This episode was mixed and compiled by Ollie Krusek. Emma Pham is our social media producer, and our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening.